All right, let's talk about Christ and Mary in scripture and tradition. When we examine scripture, uh, we see that Christ certainly didn't speak of his mother the way we see papists speak of her. <laughs> it's an entirely different ballgame. Um, in John 2, on the third day, uh, this is the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana uh, of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Notice Jesus disconnects the concerns of Mary from himself. He says, what does your concern have to do with me? So whatever's going on here, we don't really know exactly, it seems to indicate Jesus is at odds with his mother. Whatever she's concerned with, it's not primarily Jesus. However, to her credit, she turns around and she points to her son, says, whatever he says, do it. That was good. Many of the early fathers read this similarly. They spoke highly of Mary. They affirmed some, uh, many of them affirmed some form of sinlessness. I'm not going to deny that. A majority of them did. Um, and uh, though the idea of her being immaculately conceived seems to be entirely absent. So it, it does seem this elevated form of Mary and her sinlessness is a majority position of the early church. Um, but we do have fathers who, while honoring Mary, did not believe she was sinless. John Chrysostom, an early father of the 4th and 5th centuries, he believed Mary was committing the sin of vanity or unbelief here um, in John 2. And he says this, For she desired both to do them a favor and through her son to render herself more conspicuous. Perhaps, too, she had some human feelings, like his, brethren, like his brethren, when they said, Show yourself to the world in John 7. Desiring to gain credit from his miracles, Therefore, he answered somewhat vehemently, saying, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. So Chrysostom suggests that perhaps Mary was wanting to make herself great through her son's miracle, the sin of vanity. And then he connects this uh, with the sins of his brothers in John 7, which were the sins of unbelief. Uh, they were encouraging Jesus to show himself publicly in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. It reads like this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly." If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And this is the key part. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So it isn't clear what his brothers were doing here. Maybe they were being sarcastic. Maybe they, I don't know. But in their unbelief, they were wanting Jesus to publicly manifest his powers. And Chrysostom believes Mary was doing something similar at Cana, which means that Mary had some deficiency in her faith, which means there was some kind of sin in Mary. While Jesus is preaching against the Pharisees and the unbelieving Jews of that genera generation, this happens in Luke 11. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, 
Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. There was some papist in the crowd there too. But Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now, this doesn't mean that the womb wasn't blessed or uh, that Mary wasn't blessed in some way. In other scriptures, it does say that Mary was blessed. But it does show that Jesus is prizing obedience to his word more than veneration of Mary. He's putting these things at opposition to each other or in the, in the obedience to the word above veneration of Mary. And in papist practice, the way this manifests, the priority is absolutely reversed. Everybody venerates Mary while breaking the word of God. <laughs> but as long as we're venerating Mary, we'll secure her, the blessings of God through her. Um, it's, it's kind of lazy piety. Um, and if if Jesus was if Jesus was a papist, he would say something else, right? Jesus, he doesn't say you're right. She is blessed because she has heard the word of God and observed it perfectly. He doesn't say that. He's putting the person of his mother in a lesser rank than those who hear and obey the word of God. It, if a papist would never do this, they would never use the mother of God as an object lesson in contrast to obedience to the word of God. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And uh, yeah, if Jesus, if Jesus was a papist, <laughs> he, he would have responded by saying, um, he would have responded by holding up his mother as the perfect example of obedience to the word of God. But that's not what he does. Papists can try to harmonize this all they want. They can give some kind of tortured explanation of how it's not at odds with what they teach, but I ain't buying it. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus does a similar thing. We read this in Matthew 12. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The main thrust of this passage and the parallel passage in Mark 3 is like so many in the Bible. I mean, it really is. I mean, the whole Bible is really showing us this, even with the seed of Abraham. It shows us that our true family are those who obey God through faith rather than our blood relatives. And it is significant that Jesus uses his own mother, the immaculately conceived Mary, and his brothers to make this point. This suggests, though it doesn't absolutely show, that his family were being disobedient. I, it's a reasonable inference in some way at this point that that they were why weren't they there listening to him why weren't they hearing the word of god while jesus was teaching but even if it doesn't show this even if it doesn't show that they're disobedient uh, a papist would never use mary in contrast with a true follower of god she is consistently used as the highest example of following god so papists do not sound like the way jesus jesus is multiple times putting following God in contrast to his own family. <laughs> Jesus is, it just doesn't sound like a papal encyclical to me. 
again, I'm sure papists have some tortured way of saying, well, this isn't really, this really isn't at odds. This is really Jesus was affirming that Mary was, Mary was actually part of the Trinity. In Mark, uh, the, the parallel passage, this event is followed by his own family or own people or his friends. The translation just simply isn't clear. Shutting down his ministry because they thought he was insane. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So this text doesn't tell us that Mary was among these people, but she could have been. And in other places, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says this in Luke 9 and Matthew 8. Both of these statements precede statements about leaving blood relatives behind to follow Christ. Let the dead bury their, their dead. So if anything, I mean, if you take all of these things together and you, and you want to do this kind of speculative reading through the lines kind of thing, it would appear to me, with how much Jesus is bringing this stuff up, the proximity of what he's saying about leaving your family, obeying God, his own family basically being slighted in some sense. If we read through the lines, it seems like Jesus is on the outs with his own family. Otherwise, wouldn't the perfect mother of God have a place for the Son of Man to lay his head? Wouldn't he be able to lay his head at his mother's home? How could she not have a place for him to lay his head? <laughs> These are, these, are, these are the speculative reading through the lines that Rome does with all these doctrines, but it's like two can play that game. If you want to play that game, there's a whole lot of evidence that goes in the opposite direction too. But let's return to our passages in Matthew and Mark of Mary interrupting Jesus's sermons. Tertullian says this, he was justly indignant that persons so very, very near to him stood without while strangers were within hanging on his words, especially as they wanted to call him away from the solemn work he had in hand, and did not so much deny as disavow them, and therefore went to the previous question, who is my mother and who are my brethren? He added the answer, none but they who hear my words and do them. He transferred the names of blood relationships to others, whom he judged to be more closely related to him by reason of their faith. <laughs> Chrysostom ties this event to the way Jesus spoke to Mary at Cana. He says, And therefore he answered thus in this place, John 2, and again elsewhere, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? Matthew 12. Because they did not yet think rightly of him. He, Chrysostom is saying, Mary did not yet fully understand who Jesus was. And she, because she had borne him, claimed, according to the custom of other mothers, to direct him in all things, when she ought to have reverenced and worshipped him. Chrysostom strongly implying here that Mary was not reverencing and worshipping Jesus as she, ought, as she ought. That's a sin. And so this was a reason why he rebuked her on that occasion, saying, woman, what have I to do with you? Instructing her, I mean, even that, what woman, what have I to do with you? In the Roman conception, Mary is so closely tied up with Jesus that you can't ever escape it. You just never can divide these things. And, and it's like, yes, Jesus came through Mary. But then in the Roman conception, it gets so blown up that you could never say this. Jesus is wrong for saying this. Woman, what have I to do with you? <laughs> 
instructing her for the future not to do the like because though he was careful to honor his mother, yet he cared much more for the salvation of her soul and for the doing good to the many for which he took upon him the flesh. In Luke 2, after Simeon had blessed God and blessed Joseph and Mary, we read this, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Notice, speaking directly to Mary, Simeon says that a sword will pierce Mary's soul. Hilary uh, of uh, Poitiers, uh, 4th century bishop, in his homily on Psalm 119, he connects this passage to Christ's judgment on all men for their idle words, and he includes Mary in it. He adds, if that virgin who bore God is to come into the severity of the judgment, will anyone dare desire to be judged by God? Hilary makes reference to the purification undergone by fire in 1 Corinthians 3. And he includes Mary in whatever that judgment is, whether it's the word judging the thoughts of the hearts or whether it's some kind of purgation after death. We're not sure, but he includes Mary in it. Well, why would he do that? Because Mary had sins that needed to be judged. Cyril of Alexandria offers speculation about Mary while she was at the cross. And he believed that she had some insufficient faith in what Christ was doing. And having insufficient faith, Paul says that uh, anything that is not of faith is sin. So Cyril of Alexandria is suggesting strongly that Mary was sinning in some way. And he's offering a speculation, but this is what he says when she's standing at the cross. For doubtless some such train of thought as this passed through her mind. I conceived him that is mocked upon the cross. He said, indeed, that he was the true son of Almighty God. But it may be that he was deceived. He may have erred when he said, I am the life. How did his crucifixion come to pass? And how was he entangled in the snares of his murderers? How was it that he did not prevail over the conspiracy of his persecutors against him? And why does he not come down from the cross? though he bade Lazarus return to life and struck all Judea with amazement by his miracles. The woman, as is likely, not exactly understanding the mystery, wandered astray into some such train of thought. So here we have an early father speculating that Mary, Mary sinned as late as Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Matthew 11. Well, John was born after Mary, <laughs> and so this would have been an opportune moment for Jesus to say that Mary was the greatest of those born of women, but he didn't. He gives that honor to John, and he is making this wild statement that I don't think most Protestants even believe. I don't think anybody really believes it, but we are called to believe it, that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than even John the Baptist. Um, and so if we can say that the least in the kingdom of God uh, is greater than John the Baptist, we can say the least in the kingdom of God, meaning the New Covenant era, meaning the church, 
is greater than Mary, since John the Baptist is greater than Mary. Now, papists will take, you know, this is an intertestamental time. It is this transitional time between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they'll say, well, John the Baptist was Old Covenant, Mary is New Covenant, which chronologically makes no sense because Mary was born before John the Baptist. So anyway, uh, I think that we can say that even the the least of these in the kingdom is even greater than Mary. And so while we can honor Mary, we can actually honor people who are greater than Mary, who are living among us, who are here right in front of us, who unlike a statue doesn't talk back to you, unlike a painting doesn't disagree with you, unlike uh, a, a saint who has departed doesn't argue with you. But people who are walking and living and breathing, they are going to do all these things. And what that does is it cause, it sanctifies you. It causes you to exercise patience and long-suffering and charity. And that those are people that we can honor. And if we take the logic of what Jesus is teaching, they're actually greater than Mary, greater than John the Baptist. We can honor them by serving them, by loving them. Um, and and they're, they're right there in front of us, and it's much more difficult to do than decorating the tombs of the prophets and the apostles because you don't really know them, and they don't really know you, and in all likelihood, they probably wouldn't like you. <laughs> uh, we'll get into more of this when uh, we do a segment on prayers to the saints. So the biblical witness of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sounds very different uh, when speaking of Mary than papists do. Tertullian, Chrysostom, Hilary of Poitiers, and Cyril of Alexandria also sound very different. Uh, even explicitly contrary to Roman dogma regarding Mary. So, uh, <laughs> so again, when, when people say, oh, the, what the church believe, this is what the church believed at all times and in all places— they are lying to you. Uh, not, not on these issues. There was a whole bunch of different views on a lot of these things. Um, and the things that have been believed by all people in all places are shared by all Christians of all denominations. Prayer, Jesus is the Lord, all of those kinds of things. So when taking all of this into consideration, I think it is safer to assume that Mary, while a great saint and given a great honor, given a, per, a particular honor that nobody else has, has, is going to have or has had, was like us in that she had her doubts, her sins, and she grew in sanctification and understanding of the Lord and in faith, just like all of us do. All right, so honoring the, the Blessed Virgin. How can we do this? Mary says that all generations will call her blessed, and we should. She is blessed. We should honor her. And there are many things in Scripture which can be um, typologically said of her. That she is the second Eve. That unlike Eve, she submitted to God. Let it be done to me according to your will. That was a great moment of obedience on her part in contrast to the first Eve. That she is the antitype of the Ark of the Covenant. That she had the word of God inside of her. The heavenly manna, the rod of Aaron. The spirit of God overshadowed, overshadowed the tabernacle. The presence of God was over the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Just as the spirit of God overshadowed Mary, the Ark 
of the covenant in the New Testament. We see uh, the Spirit forming the body of Christ and Mary at the beginning of Luke, and then the Spirit forming the body of Christ at the beginning of Acts, where Mary is mentioned as being among the apostles in the upper room. I think Luke intends for us to make these connections. And in the Apocalypse of John, we see there seems to be some kind of blending of the church in Israel with Mary, that Mary in some sense embodies these things, these corporate realities, these spiritual realities. Immediately after John sees the Ark of the Covenant in God's temple in heaven, he sees this church Mary figure. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. That being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. I think this is primarily about the church, where being clothed with the sun is the New Testament and having the moon under her feet is the Old Testament, which reflected the light from the sun, but wasn't the sun itself. And the 12 stars are the 12 apostles, which are the 12 tribes. And the 12 apostles represent this new covenant Israel, which is the church. And she's giving birth. She's in labor. And it is, it is, uh, it is in reference to Jesus, where there's a dragon there. And we see that the story of Mary is is um, actually embodied in her person with Jesus. And then we see that it kind of recasts itself in the story of the church, where as soon as the church gives birth, the dragon of the Jews and the Romans come to persecute the body of Christ in the martyrs of the early church. And so I think that there is unmistakable narratival connection between the person of Mary and the corporate body of the church in Israel. Um, and so we can recognize that, um, that uh, Mary is this New Testament type of church where the church is the anti-type. And, um, and, and, if you, even if you, and if you accept that, it actually militates against Mary being sinless because the church is not sinless. The church grows in sanctification. It grows in obedience. And I think if that's what we see happening corporately with the church and in her understanding, that's probably what happened with Mary as well. Um, and, and just as with types, types are flawed. Types are sinful, even though they represent something glorious, which I think the fullness of the glory is the church in her final form when Jesus returns, purified and all in the chaff is, is, is sifted from the wheat and all of that is, is working towards that end. So it's understandable that these things have been historically resisted by Protestants, that typology and multiple senses of scripture have been avoided, and the rigid kind of unimaginative historical grammatical approach is solely adopted as the only method of reading scripture. Um, because typology and symbolism in scripture has been abused, it is thrown out as something bad. But the abuse of a thing does not mean that the thing is bad. Typology always comes with an aura of mystery. And so while Rome has sought to bind men's consciences, uh, consciences uh, with things that are inherently mysterious, like the person of Mary and her life, Protestants have also bound men's consciences with other things that are inherently mysterious, like the doctrine of predestination, or binding men's consciences by tying their hands behind their back by prohibiting typological exposition of scripture. And so we have to hold to the things that we know to be clear and true with firmness and to the death 
uh, Jesus resurrected, Jesus is God. We go to the stake on those things and then hold things that are mysterious with a loose grip, recognizing them as secondary and tertiary doctrines, doctrines which may be sweet like the canons of Dort uh, or the typologies of Mary, but must be held loosely and with a posture of charity toward our brothers in the faith who all share in the solid bond of mere Christianity, who all confess Jesus as Lord. So we can honor Mary, we ought to honor her, and we can do so by singing the Magnificat, her song of praise to the Lord from Luke chapter 1. In the same way we honor Martin Luther by singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, we join them in our praise to God. I think we can make statues and paintings of her, much like we make statues and paintings of men like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln as a way of honoring them. Protestants don't object to the Lincoln Memorial in D.C., and I think it's a puritanical excess to object to statues of Mary and other saints. But most other practices of giving honor to Mary through prayer or processions or bowing to statues or extra-biblical speculation, um, which becomes dogmatized, is rightly avoided by Protestants. Um, I think Catholic-minded Protestants like Lutherans have a very sober view of these things, and I think we can look to conservative Lutherans as a healthy way of approaching them, Lutherans kind of being the evangelical Catholics of Protestantism, uh, where they just seem to maintain a solid biblical approach while avoiding all of the puritanical excess that basically characterizes the rest of Protestantism. Um, they don't fall into the Papists and Eastern Orthodox uh, drunkenness in extra-biblical speculation and holding historical opinion uh, over and above what we can know for sure. So I think it's possible to honor Mary in a healthy way, and we should. And as a counterbalance, when we look at the letters of Paul and the other apostles, we don't see this kind of excessive veneration that Rome and the East give to Mary. It's simply absent. We don't see it in Acts either. Mary is in the upper room with the disciples in Acts 1, and then we don't hear about her again for the rest of the New Testament, with the exception of Revelation 12, which is an apocalyptic, uh, mysterious image. The letters of Paul and Peter and John do not sound like letters and encyclicals written by Roman popes and theologians. They aren't asking Mary to pray for the congregations they are writing to. They are not constantly pairing Mary in the economy of salvation as a mediatrix. They simply don't mention her. And those, le those letters read much more like, a pro like Protestant writings uh, with a, just a laser focus on God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when it comes to the ethos of Rome and the ethos of Protestants, I'm definitely on the side of the Protestants, particularly Lutherans. And um, I think I think if, if you're interested in these things, I think Lutherans do a good job of clinging to Scripture and having a reasonable engagement with these things. Um, and so we can look to them to kind of lead the way in uh, the future United Church uh, uh, that I'm, I'm always laboring toward. And so, um, yeah, all right, that's that. And uh, we'll be moving on to the prayers of the saints with the next installment. Amen.